Today we have a special guest coming to us all the way from South Africa, Mike Tessendorf. Mike is the co-founder of Orchard Africa, an organization helping the most vulnerable in South Africa. Mike shares several stories, the real truth behind what he sees in impoverished communities, and how him and his organization strive to implement developmental change for generations to come. Get ready to be moved, inspired, and extra grateful for the life you were blessed with. Listen now. Mike Tessendorf yes. from Orchard Africa. Welcome to No Gray Areas. So glad to have you here. I want to jump into the deep end of the pool with our conversation, Kate. Sure. Great we, to be I just, here. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it is a gift having you here. And our audience is going to find out uh, what your organization is doing. I've gotten to know someone who works for your organization, Brian Lemieux, pretty well over the years. Um, but I want to jump in the deep end of the pool with our conversation because No Gray Areas is built around this concept of the power and complexity of human choice, that, that we're, we're people of faith. And so we believe that one of the most powerful things that God has given us is this, is this ability to choose, to make choices in life. But it's right. complex that we often say that uh, we make our choices and eventually our choices make us. Mm -hmm. But here's what our audience, I want our audience to understand. I would suggest that there is a large percentage of people on our planet today out of the, what, like 7 billion people, right? Close to that. There's a large percentage of them that actually have limited choices simply because of where they're born. Yeah. We're talking poverty. Would you agree with that or disagree with that? Absolutely, I would agree. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm, my context is sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. And so I can speak into that. Yeah. Uh, clearly, there's lots of pe people in poverty in other parts of the world. But um, sub-Saharan Africa, over... Well, close to 50% of the people, that's over 500 million people who live in sub-Saharan Africa, live on less than $2 a day. Less than $2 a day. And when day. that's your daily budget, yeah. your choices are informed by that yeah. to, a, to a huge degree. Which so, is yes. really survival. Like your choices are... Correct. That's, that's like the World Bank's survival yeah. mode. Every choice they make when they're thinking about their future, it's almost always around survival. And then, and then what we're talking about, the power and complexity of human choice, is that sometimes a generational issue, right? So yeah. a little, one of the children in where you're from, sub-Saharan Africa, who's living on $2 a day, that's what's his parents' life and his grandparents' life and his or, his or her great-grandparents. So it's generational too, right? Yes. Unfortunately, uh, poverty becomes systemic and endemic and it compounds yeah. generation to generation. Yeah. Um, for example, uh, when it comes to choice, we started doing what we do in the midst of the AIDS pandemic. And so a lot of the families that we worked with were um, AIDS uh, survivors, yeah. especially the children in the care of a grandparent. So the grandparent has $2 a day and has to decide, do I buy food? Do I send my uh, the grandkid to school? Do I use money to go and try and find a job? Or what do I do? And so the child typically ends up not going to school because the family's got to eat mm -hmm. or the school is too far away. And so that child then grows up without education and generationally Gen yeah. it impacts yeah. the next generation. You know, so absolutely the environment and the social uh, economic condition that we, that people find themselves in, yeah, absolutely influence choices. Yeah. You know, I saw firsthand what you're describing. Well, I was in Southern Uganda. It was mm -hmm. one of my first trips to Africa. So that's, you, you were in sub-Sahara, but yeah. we're, we're up in Eastern Africa. But I went into uh, Southern Uganda and for an entire day, we're traveling village to village. And it was a place that had been ravaged by the AIDS epidemic. And you just described it. It was almost like a whole generation was wiped out. Right. I saw children and I saw grandparents, but that whole generation. Yeah. So, you know, um, uh, grandparents that were elderly and having a hard time walking around are caring for five or six kids, or sometimes the grandparents now have passed and the yep. kids are on their own now. Yep. So that was actually where Orchard Africa came out of, this organization that you co-founded was during that time period. Yes. It actually started off feeding a bunch of kids on a garbage dump. Um, and when we found out where those kids were from and started going into the village and moved the feeding program to the village where the kids were from, that's when we came face to face with the reason they were in the garbage dump was because the AIDS pandemic had wiped out that generation that you spoke about. And so it was children and, and grandparents trying to survive 
many of the people, because of the stigma attached to AIDS at the yeah. time, were kind of ostracized out of the village, living in cardboard boxes, yeah. um, broken down cars. Kids were not allowed to have contact with other kids if there was a suspicion that there had been AIDS in the family. Yeah. And I mean, it was just, it, it was a disaster, just heartbreaking disaster to see so many kids with so many uh, elderly people trying to care for them yeah. and no resources to do yeah. it. The first time I witnessed it, that the story I just told, I went back that night and I'd seen poverty because there's poverty all over the world, right? right? But when I saw it at that level, I remember I went back to my room that night and I wept. I wept for a long time. Like, mm. it broke me. Mm. Um, and, and then to realize, you know, we're not talking. Like, I actually saw, I, I was able to put a face to it. Um, but then when I saw, thought of the enormity of it, like the, the, the per, we're talking a large percentage of the 7 million people on our planet today. That's, that's the lifestyle that they're growing up to. Yeah. Take us back a little bit. You said it actually started with you feeding kids at a garbage dump. How mm. did, how did that start? How did you find kids at a garbage dump scrounging for food? Uh, my wife and I were, were leading a church, pastoring a church in a small city in the uh, northern, northwestern parts of South Africa. Mm -hmm. We've wanted the, our church to be involved in ministry that was outside of the Sunday scenario. Yeah. Heard about some kids that were rummaging for food on a garbage dump and felt like, well, here's something we can do as a church. Um, cooked some pots of food, got some volunteers and took the food out to the dump. And we found somewhere around 30 kids there that were on the dump every day looking for food. Yeah. And I mean, you talk about heartbreaking and, and weeping. Yeah. Uh, to see kids when that garbage truck pulls into the garbage dump and, and they like ants, well, before the truck has even stopped, they like ants swarming over the truck to looking at other people's trash for something to eat. Wow. Um, and so we started feeding the kids and, you know, committed to come back the next day and the next day and the next day. And of course, each day there were more kids and eventually we ended up with over 100 kids which we felt was great because we were feeding them, but terrible because they were being fed on the dump. Yeah. And so that's when we thought, well, let's find out where are they coming from and why are they here? And uh, located the village where most of these kids uh, were being sent by their grandparents or by surviving uh, parents who had nothing and who were trying to deal with death all around them. And so that was the only place they could think of to find food. And so we then started the feeding project in the village. So you moved it from the, from dump, the dump to, the, to village. the village. Part of that just to, to bring some dignity. Because well, you're like, yes. well, let's, yes. let's give them a meal but not have them eat at a dump. So then you go to the village, and this is how this is how all these stories take places, and this is how God often leads, right? You guys <laughs> yeah. see something, you start doing something. Right. And I, I, I often say poverty is like an onion. There's layers yeah. after layers after layers. So yep. you guys start feeding in their village, and then you start seeing these layers that, that are involved with poverty, right? Yes. So that's, I mean, if you come back to the choices then, uh, in a situation where the, the uh, provider generation is gone, uh, an elderly generation with no resources is caring for, caring for a younger generation with no resources. So uh, kids stop going to school. Um, Grandparents stop providing the love that kids need. I mean, if you're a 60-something-year-old grandmother mostly and you've got five or six grandkids, how do you how do you care for those kids and love them? Mm -hmm. uh, so there were kids that were never ever being held or hugged. You know, so th there was that kind of effect. And, and then we began to discover that um, the systemic poverty in combination with the AIDS pandemic was just having such a huge devastating effect on this particular village and that's what drove us to move beyond well yes let's feed these kids but what can we do what how can we intervene what sustainable programs can we develop to help provide care for this community because at the time i mean there was a lot of uh, international response even a lot of church response and the, 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 the knee-jerk reaction was, well, let's put up orphanages because there's going to be millions of orphans, so let's institutionalize them. And um, one of the strengths of African culture is community. And we realized that if you take those kids out of their community and put them in, in an institution, 
you're really creating a, a generation of displaced people because what happens when they age out of that institution? Mm -hmm. So our focus was community. How can we empower the community to take responsibility and, and provide care for those within the community? And so we started training caregivers. We started uh, training preschool teachers and developing preschools. Training ones that were in the community? In the community, yeah. from the community. Yeah, yeah. Along with the, with the feeding project, we felt like, well, let's plant a church and make it known that the reason there's food and the reason there's care and the reason uh, there's a preschool is because the church is here. And so that the people in the village associated the care with the church, the church. and the love of God. Yeah. And so we felt like if we could provide sustainable um, interventions within the community, then that would last for the, for a yeah. generationally rather than where if we started a program when we go the program ends and then everything's back to normal likes happens so often yeah in in many places in the, yeah. the developing world when i when i talk about uh, poverty issues or justice issues uh one of the things that always comes up is how messy it is right because it's not there's not a simple answer and it no. sounds like that's what you guys i mean it started with you guys saying we simply need to feed these kids that are at the dump then you take the feeding program back to their community, and then you start figuring out, well, how do we solve this? How do we solve this? How do we solve? This? And it got, starts getting really messy, yeah. Uh, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things which was a real eye opener, but at the same time a shock for us, is um, this was the late, well, sort of mid nineties. So South Africa had come out of apartheid in nineteen ninety four, which was a huge social injustice. Yeah, of its own. But the result of that is that in so many of the rural communities of South Africa, the birth of children was not registered. So now this child is a South African citizen born to South African parents, but when they want to go to school, they, we don't know you because there's no record of your birth. And we found this true to be, uh, we found that to be true for hundreds of kids. And then true for their, even their grandparents whose birth many, many years ago had never been registered. So they couldn't go and apply for a, a social grant. Yeah. The kids couldn't go to school. And so the messiness was, well, how do we get these kids registered? With some, uh, the U.S. call it a social security number. South Africa calls it an identity number. So without an identity number, you don't exist. And, a lot and of so here were no these hundreds of people that just didn't exist in terms of the, yeah. the infrastructure of the country. So get them registered. Then get the application into school. Get the grandparent with mindset. If your child goes to school, yeah. then they can be better off in a generation to come. Yeah. Get the grandparent to register so they can go and apply and then stand in line for a, for a grant. Yeah. And all the red tape that goes with that, you know. Um, it, it was... When we started feeding those kids on the dump, I think if we'd known where it would lead us... <laughs> we might have thought, well, <laughs> do we really want to do this? You think that's why sometimes um, God, uh, often God doesn't let us see the road ahead because yeah. he's like, because you, you'd say no. Yeah. 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 You had no idea what you were getting into. But then I came across, if you don't mind, can I read this? Absolutely. This, this was also written in the middle of the AIDS pandemic. It was um, uh, the World Bank has a World Bank blogs, mm -hmm. and this was October 2008. So this is an African person. And they write, I know poverty because poverty was there before I was born, and it has become part of life like the blood through my veins. Poverty is going empty for a day and not getting something to eat the next day. Poverty is going empty with no hope for the future. Poverty is getting nobody to feel your pain, and poverty is when your dreams go in vain because nobody is there to help you. Poverty is watching your mothers, fathers, brothers, and sisters die in pain and in sorrow. It's hearing your grandmothers and grandfathers cry out to death to come and take them because they are tired of this world. It's watching your own children and grandchildren die in your arms, but there's nothing you can do. Poverty is watching your children and grandchildren share tears in their deepest sleep. It's suffering from HIV or AIDS and dying a shameful death, but nobody seems to care. Poverty is when you hide your face and wish nobody could see you just because you feel less than a human being. It's when you dream of bread and meat you never see in the daylight. It's when people accuse you and persecute you for no fault of yours, but who is there to say something for you? 
Poverty is when the hopes of your fathers and grandfathers just vanish within a blink of an eye. I know poverty, and I know poverty just like I know my father's name. Poverty never sleeps. Poverty works all day and night. Poverty never takes a holiday. I came across this in the midst of all that work that we started doing then. And man, this just hit me so, so deeply in the deepest part of my soul. Because that is so true. And you know, coming back to what you're saying about choices, when people live like this, um, you have to recognize that some of the choices they make are not because they want to, but because they have to. Absolutely. We found, um, do you mind if I just share some stories? Please. please. Uh, young ladies, uh, teenage girls, were probably the most vulnerable of the population during that time because, again, with, with the absence of uh, their parents, mothers, fathers, um, they were helpless. And so they became prey for men who had resources, men who had money. And so the, the, the approach was, I will provide you with a pair of new jeans if you spend the night with me. Mm -hmm. So we say, well, that's prostitution. And that young girl is choosing to prostitute herself. Well, is she? Mm -hmm. Or is she simply choosing to have a meal? Or something to wear. Yeah. And that's where it gets messy and complex. Absolutely. Um, a grandparent has to decide, Do I've got $2. Do I use that money to get a public transport to go and buy food? If I use the public transport, I might not have enough to buy food. Or do I use that money to pay for my grandkid to go to school because school is 10 miles away and they can't walk there? But now they go hungry. And if I use that, then we don't have food. So I, I think when, when you say God gives us the freedom to choose, which I believe, mm -hmm. and that our choices make us, which I also believe, mm -hmm. it's true when you live in an environment that gives you the freedom to choose when you want to. But when you can't choose what you know you should choose, mm -hmm. I think that's when social justice initiatives and organizations and outside intervention becomes necessary. And you asked, um, you know, what we do. We started off as a, as a feeding project and then evolved into education and health care and um, um, food security, agricultural development. But I think over the years we realized that the best thing that we could do is help to develop people who are in un underdeveloped or underserved or disadvantaged communities to have more choices than mm -hmm. what they would have had if, if it wasn't for us. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're not trying to be the it sort of eternal provider, the savior of, of their plight. In any social justice initiative, we found there are three areas. There's relief, there's reconstruction, and then there's development. And relief is when somebody's in a crisis and you respond. And unfortunately, a lot of times that's where we leave it. And right? that's where that's, we stop. We give relief, but then we keep giving relief and Correct. keep giving relief. Yes. Correct. Yes. And that's happened in Africa for generations. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the other two then are... Then reconstruction is helping people to recover from that crisis. And that's where so it starts for getting example, messy. It starts getting messy. <laughs> yeah. Example, uh, people build their little shacks, mud houses, whatever it is, alongside the bank of a river because they want to be close to water. Maybe culturally they worship the god of the river or maybe that's where their ancestors always uh, had their houses and so mm -hmm. they live there. But then the river floods and all their houses get washed away. So we come and we say, oh, they need relief. Uh, they need food. They need blankets. They need uh, clothes. So we provide relief. Um, and that helps them get out of the crisis. However, their houses are washed away. So reconstruction is let's help them to rebuild the houses. So we get all the materials and we put up the houses again, except next year the river floods again and the houses wash away again. So development is 
well, let's help you find a place to put up your house this where it's not going really to washed away. So, <laughs> yes. yes, because not only do you have to persuade them that, well, we know you worship the God of the river, but your house is going to keep on getting washed away. So choose your God or choose a house that yeah. is going to last for more yeah. than a season. So let's move them up higher from where, where the river floods and then help them get water to where the houses are, or let's help them find a way to worship their river God without being right by the river. Yes. Yeah, and it's yeah. simplistic, but, you know, it gets complicated. And that's because where, when you guys started feeding those kids at the at the dump, that was relief. That was relief, moved it into Correct. the village. Correct. And you started feeding them and looking at some other programs that you could do training some people. That's where it starts turning into reconstruction and right. development, which is long-term. Right. Development yeah. is, it, it's, it's complicated because it's very, very difficult to take a photo of development. You know, we, we, can, we can take uh, 100 tons of food and take a photo and say, look at what we did. And everybody says, rah, rah, rah. Yeah. But development takes time. Development is hard to measure. And development, I'm going to, excuse me for using this word, it's just not sexy. Yeah. So people yeah. would much rather get behind a relief program or even a, a reconstruction. Let's go and build houses. But when you say we want to train people and develop people so that in 10 years' time they'll have a better choice than they have today, well, we want to see instant results. Well, and that's this is one of the reasons, Mike, I wanted to have you on here. Hey, from your No Gray Areas team, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. And if you're loving this episode, would you just take a moment and leave us a review rating on whatever platform you're listening from. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on the new podcast episodes that drop every other Wednesday. By leaving a review and subscribing, you help others discover our podcast's inspirational messages to effectuate positive change in their lives. Okay, let's jump back in to this episode. This is one of the reasons, Mike, I wanted to have you on here. First of all, I love what Orchard Africa does, and we're going to give people the op opportunity to connect with you and see how they can partner. But um, I think that there's so much of uh, retraining and, and educating that we have to do to us as donors. I say us because a lot of us that grew up in the in the West that are more privileged just simply because of where we grew up in, in, in middle class or upper class homes, and we, we become donors to these organizations. We need to be educated on it because I, I worked for an international relief and development organization from 2005 to 2010. And so I understood, I saw some of the stuff that you go through. How do you, how do you help these donors understand? Because it's easy to get them to give when you can go, um, look how much food we gave, or we had these many kids go through this program. But development is very, very hard to track yes. to show how you help change a, a mindset or a worldview. How do you show that? But that change of worldview will have a generational impact. Absolutely, yes. And that's what—that's the messy part of it. And that's yes. And that's—I think that we've spent thirty something years now wading through the mess. But we are fortunate because we have thirty years of um, history to look back on, and we can see the results of development. Yeah. So some of the kids that started coming to the feeding project back then, who were five and six years old are now married and have jobs and are, have kids and they didn't uh, become infected with HIV and so they're healthy and they're well. Some of them are pastors of churches. Uh, others are leading um, worship and other ministries in churches. Yeah. Uh, some of them who we managed to get scholarships for have become doctors and lawyers and us. Wow. Even even overseas, we recently had a young girl that was recruited to go and uh, practice medicine in Cuba. Uh, you know, for, so Cuba, love it or hate it. So she came from she came from poverty of South Africa, and is practicing medicine in Cuba. Yeah. And for a lot of those kids, I mean, this particular village where she came from, she was the first child to ever go on to be educated beyond high school, mm -hmm. and so now she's a doctor. You know, so. And then her career influences all her siblings and their children because African society is community. Mm -hmm. And so we don't just care for us four no more. We care for our brothers and our sisters and our parents. And yeah. the entire family becomes provided because somebody's yeah. got a job. Somebody's got a career. Every culture has its, its beauty and its darkness, right? Every culture yes. does. You go tra I love traveling the world and you see it. 
that is one of the beauties of the, the the African culture, isn't it? Is there is there community aspect? Yes, that it's us. Yes, absolutely. It's a very much of an us, and it's a it's a beautiful part of the culture. It's a part of the culture that we can learn from them and and adopt here, and it would it would do us well. It would. We're very, we're very individualistic, would. which there's some good things about that, but some dark things about it. <laughs> that too. That's a whole other podcast, probably, because well, you actually learned. grew up in a very you grew up in South Africa, so you grew up more with that community, and now you live in America where we have this very individualistic, it's, it would be another great conversation to have with you. Well, South Africa is an interesting place because it's, a, it's where so many different cultures and so many different uh, worlds collide. Okay. Uh, Bish, Archbishop Desmond Tutu back in the day when apartheid was dismantling called us the Rainbow Nation just to describe of all the multi-cultures. I mean, we have 12 official languages in the country. Where where does help help me out just just out of curiosity because I love history historically where does that come from what what happened in South Africa that made it this this blending area or yeah South Africa was settled in the 1600s originally by the Dutch and and who who also brought the French into uh, the southern part of the country to create farms and produce vegetables for the sailors that were sailing around Africa to get from Europe to the east. So the yeah, Dutch, that's kind of the one country in Africa where you, you, you kind of was, have to go around that to get right. it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And that makes so, sense. So it was a refreshment station. And then the British came and um, the British eventually became the, the colonizers of the Cape. And so the white, well, let's say the, the, the Caucasian heritage in Southern Africa is Dutch, French, and British. <laughs> But when these settlers arrived, the, the indigenous tribes were already there. So, you know, we have Zulu and Kosa and, and, and uh, Sesotho and Siswati and Setswana. And there's actually nine major indigenous African tribes in South Africa. They all had their individual and languages all have their and their cultures individual and cultures. And and, right. Wow. And so when apartheid ended, it was, well, we need to find the way to make this rainbow work. Yeah. And um, I think we're doing okay. Yeah. I, I think we're doing okay. There's yeah. still lots of progress to be made, but we, we're doing good. Yeah. Well, Mike, let me ask you a question. I'm embarrassed to ask this, but it's an important question to ask because I'm, most of our listeners are uh, from a faith-based perspective, uh, attend church. Someone might say, I don't think we have as many that say this today, but someone might say, well, what were you doing feeding kids? I mean, that's great, but isn't the church's responsibility to, <laughs> to save souls? Mm. Um, that's more of a social justice issue that you're talking about. And we don't want to mix those as a church. Speak into that. Oh, my goodness. That was um, part of the journey that we, or let's say part of the adventure we embarked on when we started feeding these kids because we asked ourselves that question. We grew up with the mindset of our task is to save souls, make disciples, populate heaven. And so we began searching scripture, and I mean, I, would, I was amazed. It blew my mind mm. when you look for it, how much of scripture talks about the feeding the kids side, the, the social justice. And I think the, the mistake that we make is that we think it's an either or, and quite honestly, it's, it's a both and, where... I think if I can quote, uh, paraphrase James, where what good is your faith if you don't have works? Yeah. Because faith without works is dead. dead. And he talks about, you show me your faith and I'll show you my works mm -hmm. and you'll see my faith by my works. So our, our, our faith is evidenced by what we do, not just by what we say, because he uses the example. If somebody comes to you and they're hungry and they don't have uh, their daily provision, what are you gonna do, pray for them? Yeah. Or the, the Bible says, say, God bless you, be warmed and be filled. In other words, yeah. I pray for you, brother, and God will provide. No. I, I don't want prayer. I want a, I want a meal. He's, the, the scripture says, give them what they need. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, again in James, he said, you know, pure religion is caring for the widow and the orphan in their distress. And their distress is not, I want to know Jesus loves me. Their distress is, I'm alone, I'm afraid, I'm vulnerable, I'm hungry, I'm parentless. What can you do to help me? And I mean, I can go on and on and on. And but the the, the so that Bible was a, that was a journey you you yourselves had to take. Then, absolutely, to understand that. Absolutely, I I was almost embarrassed to ask that question because I grew up the same way you did. In fact, I was one of those when we would take mission trips. I, I this is embarrassing for me to say, 
But I would come back, you know, I take a group of students, I used to be a teacher and a coach, and we go on a missions trip, and I would say things like, you know, when we were reporting to the church and the donors that, that sent us, I would say things like, oh, it was great, we were able to dig wells that day, and we were able to build some some huts that, that, that day, and um, we had a, a feeding thing, And but, but the great thing was that night we were able to share the gospel. Mm. And why I'm embarrassed to say that now is the gospel was also feeding people, and yeah, uh, digging water wells for clean water. Like we don't have to separate that. And like you said, my journey was similar to what your journey was, where when I really began to read the Bible from cover to cover, you see God's heart for justice and you see God speaking to feeding the hungry and taking care of the orphans and the widows, which were the most vulnerable yes. in that society. So I loved how you answered that. It's not an either or, it's an and. Like we should be doing both. And in fact, Jesus modeled that, didn't he? When he came to earth, it, it was... Someone was lame and he healed him. Someone was hungry and he fed him. Someone was so he was doing both. Yeah, um, I think one of one of the passages that kind of moves me always is uh, Jesus taught us to pray, "Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven." So uh, this might be very simplistic, but to me that means God wants people on earth to experience what it's like in heaven. And if people are hungry on earth, surely they're not hungry in heaven. If people are sick on earth, I, surely they are well in heaven. So shouldn't our job then be to pray that just as things are well with people in heaven, so they should be well with people on earth? Oh, I love that so much, Mike. I, when I would preach on justice, when I used to preach, I would always say that justice is seeing, through, seeing things through the eyes of God or caring about what God cares about or giving people a foretaste of what that future fulfilled mm. kingdom will look like. Mm. And it's just what you said. There's, There will not be hungry people in heaven. There will not be sick people in heaven. There won't be rape and pillaging. Correct. And there won't be people digging through dumps anymore to find food. And so part of our role here is to give people a, a, a picture, a foretaste of what that's going to be. That's right. what Orchard Africa is doing. Yes, and it's, it's not just a future thing. Yes, we all agree that there, there is a future kingdom to come. But at the same time, there is a kingdom that is now. It's one of those Absolutely. truth tensions that we, we try and juggle. Yep. Um, it's now but not yet. Correct. Thing, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, as ambassadors of the kingdom, then thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Surely we have a role to play mm -hmm. in having experience, in not just preparing people for heaven, but allowing them to experience God's will mm -hmm. on earth until they get to heaven. So I often think that whole process of, well, we preach the gospel and the rest of it is not our job. It's, and this is going to sound a little bit cynical, but it's okay for people to go through hell on earth as long as they get to heaven when they die. Shame on us. That's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, I, I agree. Yeah. Well, and you being a, a, a pastor too, understand, and again, and this is where the Bible just started coming alive to me when I began to understand this narrative. Uh, you know, I had always grown up hearing heaven and hell. Heaven and hell were always the same conversation. But when you read the Bible, heaven and hell aren't really talked about in the same car as heaven and earth are. <laughs> so this, the story starts, heaven and earth are in, in perfect harmony. Right. And we look at the end of the story in heaven and earth in perfect harmony. This middle part of the story, this narrative that we're in, we as Jesus followers are supposed to bring, like you said, like even when Jesus teaches how to pray, bring some of heaven to earth, like bring heaven and earth into harmony so people can get a picture of that. Yeah. So shame on us for ever saying, like I said, like, well, then I got to share the gospel. As if the gospel wasn't feeding someone. Mm. Um, mm. Or saying that, you know, if someone has to experience hell on earth to get to heaven, I mean, I understand where they mean, what they mean by that, but boy, that can really dilute what we see the narrative of God's word, right? Somebody, and you might have heard this quote, it's not new, but it just came to mind as you were talking. Um, it could have been Francis of Assisi, but you know, somebody like him said, uh, we should preach the gospel at every opportunity and from time to time use words. Yep. Um, Love that. Yeah. yeah I and, think you're right. I think yeah. it was St. Francis of Assisi. But yeah. It's, it's not just about the gospel that we preach. And yes, we need to preach the gospel. The good news is the hope of the world. Yeah. It's the only thing that can change a person's heart. And of course we need that. Yeah. But at the same time, let's not neglect that God is concerned about physical and social and justice needs of people yeah. on earth as well. And we don't see him separating that. We don't, I don't. see Jesus. I don't. When, when we had God in the flesh 2,000 years ago on earth, he didn't separate those two. He, he blended them. In fact, in Luke 4, when he gives his mission statement, quoting from Isaiah 61, he said, this is what I came to do. 
uh, feed the hungry, to loose the chains of injustice, right. to, you know, and so it was, right. it was always both. How, so, so poverty, and this is one of the things we're talking about is that, that and I, it's so good for most of our listeners grew up like I did, um, you know, middle class or upper class or lower middle class, maybe a few lower class, but most of us had that mindset, that worldview, if you will, uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We learned a lot of things. We mm. had a lot of choices. Now, it, our choices were like, where do I go to school? Mm. It wasn't, where do I eat? Right. It was, where do I go to right. school? But to help us understand that a lot of people on this planet today, that's not the choice they have. It's, so help unpack a little bit that poverty is more than just the socioeconomic, right? There's a mindset. There's a worldview that goes along with it, right? And that I think that quote you read helps us understand that a little mm. bit. But can you speak into that a little bit? As you work with communities and people in poverty, it's not just a socioeconomic situation. It's a mindset. Yes, uh, which I th is why it's so important for us to focus on development and not just end with relief and, and reconstruction. Because you do need to, when, when people have lived in historic and systemic poverty, it does become a mindset. Um, hope gets lost and there's no vision, no hope at all for any kind of future that's different. Mm -hmm. And so I believe to move people out of the, the grip of poverty, not only do you need to provide that relief, but you need to instill something in them which gives them the ability to think and dream and hope and believe that it doesn't have to be like this mm -hmm. forever or it doesn't have to be like this for their, their next generation. Mm. And so that's when the mindset comes in because, I mean, technically poverty, I suppose, is a mindset of never having enough. And, you know, you, you can, I think they're rich people that have that mindset of never having enough. Well, but that's, if a, you, that's if, a great point, isn't it? That's a great yeah. point because if poverty is a mindset of never having enough, I can actually have enough, but I'm living in a, with a poverty mindset. Of, yes. Yeah. Yes. And so our, our approach was, you know, if, if a ladder has 10 steps, um, it might not be likely in one generation to get a person from step one to step 10, but if we can get them to step three, in the next generation, they might get to step five. And so suddenly, yes, let's, let's think education is important because if I can get my child to go to school, they can possibly get a job and then not have to grow up unemployed like I did. Yeah. Um, or if I can get my child to, to go to school, um, it means that I can have time to go and find a job because I don't have to look after the child. 24-7. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it, it, it is a mindset. And I think for us in those early, early years, the most important thing to, to break was this uh, devastating hopelessness that it just, it was like a blanket that, that, that overwhelmed communities where mass death and then mass yeah. need as a result of that. This happened to my parents, so my grandparents, my great-grandparents. Yeah. It's obviously going to yeah. be my life too. And so just a little thing like training somebody in the village to become a caregiver and suddenly instead of them waiting for somebody to come and help them, they're going to from house to house. Mm. Just bathing or just talking to or holding the hand of somebody else who's in a worse situation than them. It ignites, um, my wife Michelle used to say, when, when, when the human spirit comes alive, hope is ignited. And yes. it, it, it ignites something. And suddenly there's people in the village saying, hey, we can do something for our own people. And that becomes contagious instead of the hope becoming the prevalent sense of uh, uh, darkness. Yeah. Hope starts bringing light. And so, yes, I, I, I do think it's a mindset. But again, development is something they takes time and it's not going to change a person's mindset overnight. So let's get them to step two, step three, step four, and not say we failed because we didn't get them to step 10 yes. in our lifetime. How, how do you stay healthy dealing with this? You know, I, I know when I back, when, when I, I was worked with anti-human trafficking for a while too. Um, and, and when I waded into that, the muck and mire and the darkness of that, it, it, I, I was, uh, I, I was broke for a little while. Maybe even I might say unhealthy because mm. it was, mm. it's just difficult to see and hear that stuff all day, every day. And you, you're hearing some and seeing firsthand and watch some really difficult, desperate, broken things. 
How do you stay healthy in that? So my wife and I have kind of walked this road together from day one. So the two of us play a huge role in each other's lives in keeping ourselves healthy. You know, two are better than one, and when the one is down, the other one lifts him up. We've had to be that for each other. Uh, certainly our faith, um, being able to turn to God and knowing that in spite of all the devastation and the pain that we see, that there is a loving God who cares and that at some point there's something better that God has in store for everybody. Mm-hmm. And that that our faith in him is that, that, that anchor to our soul. So those are two crucial things. And then having having friends and peers who understand what we do, many of them who do what we do, to just have a community of people around us, um, because you, it is devastating. I think it can become debilitating when uh, day after day after day you just see the need and, and the plight of the desperate. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to find that outlet. Mm-hmm. And then probably... The thing that has saved us, um, and when I say us, my wife and I and our marriage, is to make sure that we actually take time off. Mm. Uh, we we were brutally, brutally uh, determined to make sure that one day out of seven, we took a break yeah. and we'd get in our car and drive somewhere yeah. away from where all of this was going on just to experience something different. And the, we've we've adhered to that for thirty years. You've really lived out the Sabbath principle, that <laughs> gift, the gift that God wanted to give us. Right, and, and it's and not always us. being holy, you know. It's yeah, not always. Yeah, yeah. It's just just take a break. Yeah, yeah. Just get away from everything. Yeah. Just yeah, yeah, for sure. How how would people get a hold of uh, Orchard Africa or you? I think the best way is through our website. It's uh, orchardafrica.org. Okay. And um, all our information, every th- our story, everything about us is there, all the, our reports of, of the years past. Yeah. And then our contact information. Okay, it's there. Um, so we have, we have an office in Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, yeah. and then we have obviously an office in South Africa. And uh, we are South African, my wife and I, born and raised and spent yeah. most of our life there. We still your travel back. gives that away a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. I love your accent. So it gives it away a little bit. Well, hey, Mike, can you do something for us? Can you help? Because I think this is the danger for me and for everyone else. We hear stories like this. And when we hear big numbers, you know, like 4 billion of the 7 billion people on our planet live on $2 or less yes. a day or something. It just we can't, we can't wrap our minds around that. So can you help us put a face to these stories, you know, we're talking about um, people that are, you know, we you, you've shared some kind of some different scenarios, but maybe tell us a story of, of one person and help us put a face to it. Well, he has, he has a story. This is a young man back in the early 90s. He started coming to the early feeding project that we started um, as a six-year-old. So with, his, like with, his, with his brother. In our, yeah, in ours. Yeah, he had yeah. an older brother, two older brothers and a younger sister. And all four of them used to come to the feeding program. They came to the learning center that we developed, got involved in the church. And um, skip forward to November 2021. I'm sitting with this guy. We, we, we had a, a pastor's network meeting. He's there. He's now a pastor of a church. He's in his 30s. And he says this to me. He said, Pastor Mike, what would have happened if you and Michelle never came to our village? He said, I have a sister and two brothers, and all four of us, all four of our lives have been significantly impacted just because you came to our village. What would have happened if you never came? Hmm. And so you could have knocked me over with a feather then because it never struck me that 30 years after this young guy as a six-year-old came because he was hungry would be telling me his sister is she got a university degree she's educated and working his younger brother is a sports broadcaster one of the top sport broadcasters in south africa he's won awards wow um he broadcasts soccer his older brother works for the government health department 
and is responsible for security in in all the health facilities in in the province where he works. He drives around in with the the minister of health in in a fancy car, and this young guy is a pastor. So there's four kids, mm. all siblings, all siblings, an entire family, and of course they're going to have children, and it's going to ripple down to their children. So that's. Wow. One story. I don't know how many other families there are like his, mm-hmm. but I have to believe that over 30 years of ministry in, in 60 or 70 different communities like that, there are multiple families whose lives will not be the same because somebody went there to feed them, somebody invited them to a preschool, somebody cared for them when they were sick. Somebody just showed them that they were significant enough to be loved yeah. and went to their village. Yeah. So I hope that oh, answers the question. It absolutely does. You know, and it makes me think too, Mike, one of the beautiful things that, that Orchard Africa is doing or uh, all of our audience is somehow involved in, in, in helping different organizations that are doing this kind of work. It's, it's believing and fighting for the inherent dignity of humans, isn't it? That we believe yes. as people of faith that, that humans are the pinnacle of God's creation. We're the only thing that are created in the image of God. And so when we see a human created in the image of God with the fingerprints of God on them that are just trying to figure out where they're going to get the next meal mm-hmm. or the grandma that's having to figure out which of my, which of my grandkids do I feed today, yeah. that, that stripped away the dignity that God wanted us to have and create us to have and to, to fight for that. So I honor you for doing that. I just want to tell our audience, um, please, please go to orchardafrica.org. There's ways to give. I, I lo- I'll do this for you, okay? Thank <laughs> I'll you. do this for you. These, this kind that. of work doesn't happen without donors. And I can tell you, I've vetted out this organization myself. I've met with Brian, who's on your staff numerous yes. times, and we've talked, and I actually got connected to you because I was in a mission pastor's office and I saw her books on on uh, her bookshelf and I'm like, wow, she really understands long-term sustainable development, you know, moving beyond relief, biblical worldview, all the value. She understands that. And I found out that they work with you. And so okay. this is a, you, you have a fantastic organization. You're doing amazing work. And so I want to really encourage our audience. God's heart beats for the least, last, and lost. Yes, absolutely. And an organization like Orchard Africa is making a difference. And I, I think I saw on your your website, you know, there's the thirty dollars a month or thirty, right? Isn't it feeds a child yeah. for a month or, or helps yeah. a child for a month? Yeah, it's all it's all set out there. Of yeah. what, what your gift could do. That's a dollar a day for us. Yeah, that's a. I mean, I go get coffee sometimes at Starbucks <laughs> for six or seven bucks, know. And, you know. Mm. So I, there's no way we can't find a way. You know, as us as listeners, there's no way we can't find a way to sacrifice something and go go give to an organization like this. So I really want to encourage people to do that. Thank you. Make a difference in the world. God's heart beats for the least, last, and lost. Ours should too. So thank you for what you do. Oh, it's been an incredible adventure, but so privileged to be able to do this. Um, I think my life is the richest it could possibly be. For sure. Thank you. For sure. Well, Mike, one way we finish uh, our, is, is with two truths and a lie. It's <laughs> ironic because we're no gray areas. But uh, yeah. we've been listening to you. We've gotten to know you a little bit for 45 minutes or so. Let's see if you can stump us. Give us three statements. Two of them will be truths. One will be a lie. And I'll try to guess. The audience will try to guess the lie. All right. So my history, obviously, is South African. So these all relate to South African past. Some years ago, I ran an ultramarathon, 55 miles, and finished. Wow. Um, in one of the towns in our in South Africa, there is a museum to the Tessendorf family. Um, my younger years, or my, my entire life has been uh, in the pastoral ministry, but in my younger years to help supplement my income, I used to go and help the um, wildlife people with uh, giraffes that were born. Um, the little ones you know, often die because the mother's so high. So I used to help them by catching the giraffes and um, making sure that the baby's lives were preserved. Wow, those are good ones. Those are really good ones. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to say the last one is true because you added a lot of detail. (laughs) Is that true? (laughs) That is the biggest lie. (laughs) 
Oh, oh no. Okay. You ran an ultra marathon. I did. Yeah. Okay. I because I, I think I remember Brian saying that you had. I think he was talking about telling me a little bit about you guys. And he said something about running. So yeah. I so oh so I had a 50-50 chance and I still missed. Good one. Okay. My that was a story. My son. My son came to college at Arizona State University. And that was a story he used to tell all his friends about his African dad. Because no, and they all believed it. They all believed it. <laughs> I just thought it was true because you were adding so much detail. And that's usually what someone does with the, try to make a lie believable. So giraffes probably don't need help. No, somehow they've managed to survive without For, us. <laughs> I should. I grew up around farming, so I should have yeah. figured that that yeah. part out. But okay. And so, uh, uh, what was the middle one again? Uh, the museum. The Tessendorf. Yeah. yeah, my okay. family is uh, German by origin, and so in the early 1800s, there was a huge German settlement that came out from Germany to South Africa. Actually, um, my great great grandfather was a twin, and his brother came to the United States. So the Tessendorfs in in America from the same bloodline. Really? So one went South Africa, one, one went to America. Yeah. But uh, so in in the Eastern Cape, uh, part of one of the one of the parts of South Africa, there's a town called King Williamstown where there's a Tessendorf Museum, yeah. and so all the little artifacts of little baby cribs and clothes and stuff yeah. that go back to oh, those. Fun years. for you, you yeah. actually like a lot of us. You know, we don't know much more past our grandparents, so you can go back and see some of your genealogy, and that's that's yeah, exciting. It's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Well, Mike, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a pleasure for me to get to know you. I've heard a lot about you. I've heard a lot about Orchard Africa. So to get to interview you and for our audience to hear. And again, audience, please go to, to orchardafrica.org and uh, give to a great organization. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Pat. This has been wonderful. Thank you for what you do. Yeah, thank you. What an amazing discussion that was with Mike. It's incredible hearing from a man making such a generational impact in our world. Let us know how you enjoyed this episode by commenting your thoughts below. And here's a challenge for you listeners. How can you make a difference in the lives of others this week? As always, be sure to like this video, subscribe, and leave us a five-star review. We'll catch you on the next episode. Have a great week. <laughs>